Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. Uh, Luke uh, chapter 15. So for those of you who are visiting here to see uh, grandchildren or nieces or nephews uh, dedicated, again, we're glad to have you here. But we're working our way through a series on the book of Luke. And there's 24 chapters in the book of Luke. And every week, I just do a new chapter. And I, I don't do the whole chapter. There's far too much uh, material. But every week, I'll just take a parable, uh, a story, one thing out of a chapter, preach a message, and the next week, we'll move on uh, to the next one. And so this week, we're on Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read to you the first 10 verses, and then we'll pray. And then we'll look at this. But uh, let me read this to you. Uh, two, actually, we're going to look at two parables today. But Luke 15 has three very famous parables in it. The, uh, the parable of the, of the lost sheep and the parable of the woman with the lost coin and then the parable of the prodigal son. That's all Luke chapter 15. Let me read you the first two here. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Okay, that's the hymn there. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now, the thing you have to understand is we often tend in the West to read our Bibles in very disjointed ways uh, because our Bibles are broken up into sections, and that's good. The, the publishers have broken them up into sections so we can uh, you know, see certain stories and parables easier, and they, and they stick out. But it also makes us break up the reading as if these are separate pieces, and they're not. All of chapter 15, the three parables, three of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, are all a response to this issue in the first two verses. The Pharisees are grumbling that Jesus is hanging out with sinners, so, and he's going to tell them three parables. All three of these parables, not just the first one, have to do with this issue. They're grumbling about him hanging out with sinners, okay? So these three parables are all in a group, and they go together, all right? So he told them this parable, verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, of course, there is no such thing as a person who doesn't need repentance. You could put that in quotations. He's being sarcastic. Uh, than over 99 people who think they don't need repentance, right? And then he goes on and tells the second parable, verse 8, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. Now, the thing you have to understand, a little bit of Middle East uh, culture here, this is not just 10 random coins. Uh, most likely, this has something to do with uh, Middle East uh, custom at the time. Uh, the father would give the daughter a dowry when she was married, and often in the form of coins. Uh, sometimes they would wear it, kind of these coins in, uh, in some sort of a headdress. Sometimes they would wear them around their neck as a, as a necklace. And so this dowry would have both sentimental value uh, because it was given to them by their father at the wedding, 
but it also had monetary value. One of the reasons the fathers would give the woman a dowry is just in case in those days there was no social, social security net, right? There was no workers' comp. If there was no, you know, life insurance. So if, if her husband died, she was on her own and people were desperately poor back then. So that dowry was there just in case. And so this woman, so maybe she was wearing these coins as a dowry around her neck. Uh, who knows, but one of them is lost. And again, sentimental value, but actual real value, kind of like a, uh, you know, a, a rainy day, not a rainy day fund, but a disaster fund in, in a way. And so she, you can just see her sweeping the dirt floor of her hut, desperately looking for this coin. She does not want to lose this coin. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, this is Jesus speaking again, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So right, bow your heads with me and close your eyes and we'll pray. And then let's, and let's ask Jesus to speak to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for these children we saw up here today. And we do pray a blessing on those parents. It is, in our culture today, it is increasingly a more and more difficult job to raise godly kids. And I pray your spirit would bless each of those young parents today. Give them stamina. Give them a desire for your word. And then, Lord, fill them with lots of love and grace for their children. And lots of energy to raise them for you. And then, Lord, I thank you for these parables. Wow, your heart for us is absolutely amazing. I pray that we would receive your love for us again in a fresh way this morning. Plus, Lord Jesus, that you would put on us your heart for others. That we would be a, the kind of church that reflects the heart of yours that we see in this, these parables. In your precious, powerful name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, so the Pharisees, right? And, you know, 2,000 years of church history. Many of us have grown up in the church. We read the Gospels, and, uh, and we know the Pharisees are the bad guys. So we just kind of, and, and one of the reasons I always have to bring that up is because we read these stories so quickly, and we often read them smugly, so that we don't actually feel the conviction because we just read these stories as, oh, like those terrible Pharisees. They didn't, they didn't love people. Like clearly we need to love sinners as if we love sinners and they didn't. And so we kind of just read them smugly. But I'd like to us to take some moments of being this message to, again, give the Pharisees a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Because if we don't do that, we fail to see how these parables still speak to us today and how we are still sinful Pharisees in many ways today. And so the first thing I want to draw your attention to, rather than just, you know, writing the Pharisees off immediately and going, oh, those, those hateful, hard-hearted Pharisees, those crazy, hard-hearted Pharisees, for not wanting Jesus to hang out with sinners. Like, of course, Jesus would want to hang out with sinners. But wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible itself repeatedly, over and over again, warn us about being careful who we hang out with. Doesn't the Bible do that? I mean, I'm going to show you a few passages. I could show you many, many. This is not a minor topic in Scripture. This is a huge topic in Scripture. Let me show you several passages because some of where... Now, the Pharisees clearly are in the wrong in these parables. There's no question. But they're not in the wrong for as much as what we would tend to think nowadays. Some of where they're coming from is actually biblical. Psalm, we'll start with Psalm chapter 1. It's a famous psalm, and many people have memorized that one. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, says this. Blessed, this is David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, 
nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's what David writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Blessed is a man, right, who, walk not, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And the Hebrew word there translated in the sits, uh, in the sits one there is the Hebrew word yashav, and it literally means to abide, to, uh, to remain with. We may say it in everyday language as hanging out with. So literally what David is, is saying here is, blessed is the man who does not hang out with sinners, who does not hang out with scoffers. See, we just have this idea, we just read through the Gospels, and we have a certain picture of what Jesus was doing with sinners, and actually, I don't think in many cases it matches up with reality. Now, the Pharisees were wrong, and we will get to that, but they were wrong in a bit of a different sense than we sometimes think of it as, but I'll just show you a few more passages, because this is not just one passage. This is all over the place, and I am not using nearly all that I could use. Proverbs Chapter 13, verse 20 says this, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Now there's something to write down. Who you, who you hang out with will impact your life. Whoever walks with the wise will become wise. But look at this, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. The Bible says hanging out with bad people can get you in trouble. And how many of you parents know that to be true? Yes, is that not true? We know that to be true. You, you, you have people, I mean, never mind for us as adults, but for your kids, we have people and it's like, I don't really want my kids hanging around with those people because the companion of fools will suffer harm. I can tell you stories, people who have sat in my office here at this church, some terrible stories of terrible things that people have done or that have happened to them because they were with the wrong crowd at the wrong time. Isn't that true? This is, a, this is a true statement that the Bible has for us. Be careful who you spend all kinds of time with. Or how about this one? I love this one. Proverbs 23, verse 19 to 20. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. Right? I, that just convicted a whole swath of men here in this... Uh, sanctuary this morning, including myself. Be not around gluttonous eaters of meat. Now, just, just so you know, I'll go back to the drunkard's part in just a minute. I read this verse and I'm like, there's no way I can preach this because I am the biggest hypocrite around on the gluttonous eating of meat. So I actually looked up gluttonous. I'm like, I have got to see the Hebrew on this. And I was thankful to read the Hebrew word. There is a Hebrew word, jalal. It literally means riotous eating. The point of this passage is not eating too much meat. I think that's perfectly fine for you. Load on the bacon, load on the pork chops, okay? The idea of this passage, the drunkards and the riotous eating, it's this wild partying, drunkenness, that sort of thing. It's riotous uh, eating. But anyway, I was very thankful to find that. But anyway, be not among drunkards, right? And again, parents, don't we know this? And adults, don't we know this? Okay? Of course, that's a bad... Why would you... You don't want your kids hanging around. What? Hanging around. So again... We go, okay, now wait a minute, because we read these stories in the Gospels very uncautiously. We just kind of read them, and we have this picture of Jesus uh, hanging out with, with, with drunks and at wild parties. But, and then we think, oh, those Pharisees for, for, uh, for criticizing Jesus for being with sinners. But actually, we see in Scripture throughout, we see these warnings about who we hang out with. Now, 
How do we bring these two things together? The fact that the Bible warns us about this, the fact that we see Jesus being with sinners, how do we bring these, uh, these things together and uh, bring them into unity? And uh, I know what some of you might be thinking, maybe you don't come to Southland that often or regularly, and you might be thinking, well, the answer is easy. Uh, Chris, so far, all the passages you've shown us are all from the Old Testament. So clearly this must be one of those Old Testament, New Testament things where the Old Testament was all about be careful who you hang out with. And then the New Testament ushered in this new era of like, just go and be with the sinners because it's all about grace and love now. Okay, and of course, you know, I preach about this regularly. I think it's such an important thing for understanding the scriptures. The Old Testament and the New Testament were written by the same God. It's not a different message in the New Testament and the Old Testament. They are a continuation And so one of the things I want to show you, you might think, oh, maybe this is an Old Testament thing, not a New Testament thing. Did you know that the New Testament warns us about the exact same thing? And again, I could show you a number of passages, but let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, right smack dab in the middle of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul himself, and the Apostle Paul says this, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's in the the New Testament. Do not be deceived, he says. Bad company ruins good morals. Hanging out, in other words, hanging out with the wrong people can cause you to end up saying things or doing things or watching things that you should not do. And isn't it true that many of us here today have memories? Somewhere along in our past, hopefully not too recently, but somewhere along in our past, we've been with the wrong crowd and they were talking about things that should not be talked about or watching things that should not be watched or, or whatever, doing things that should not be done. And we were in the crowd and we kind of went along with it because we were in the crowd. And the next day you, you wake up and you just feel gross and you feel guilty. Isn't it true? Many of us would have memories like that. And Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. In other words, some people will be deceived about this. Some people will think it doesn't matter who they hang out with. Some people will think, I'm, you know, one of the age-old excuses, right, is the reason I have to go to such and such party or be in such and such a place is I'm reaching these people for Jesus. And Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company, okay, ruins good morals, okay? And I've actually seen people who have lost their faith because They had a group of people around them who were so full of skepticism and doubt. And, you know, sometimes Christians are naive. We go to these conferences and we get these slogans about being a light in a dark world. I've seen people who were a a light by themselves in a dark place. And it's not always the faith that lights on fire the skepticism and doubt. It's sometimes the skepticism and doubt that goes the other way. And sometimes there's a naivety about that among Christians. And that's what the Bible warns us about again and again. Now, of course, this isn't a hard and fast rule because... There's some amazing stories out there of missionaries, people who have gone into some of the darkest of the dark places to the worst of the worst people, and they've gone out there and God has done amazing things. I mean, I think of one of my favorite biographies of all time. We have it in the church library. If you haven't read it, you definitely should. But Jackie Pullinger's Chasing the Dragon. I think it's, it's uh, it was from the, I think she did this in somewhere in the 1970s or maybe the 60s, but somewhere in there. And she was called by God to go to Hong Kong. She went into this area of the city that was known for prostitution, drugs, and violence. It was so bad the police wouldn't even go in there. She went in there. God actually called her. She went in there. There was an anointing on her. And amazing work happened. So there's no question 
There's no question that there's callings and some people there's an anointing or, or God is moving them and they have the strength and they go into dark places and they, they do do it. But at the same time, we have to always balance that out. There's these warnings not to be naive. Bad company does corrupt good morals. And so the question is, how do we know? How do we know, you know, uh, when God is saying stay away from a group of people or when God is saying reach out to a group of people? And, and of course, there are no hard and fast rules, but I just, I thought it would be very helpful for us in this message today before we get back to Luke chapter 15, I just want to give you four general guidelines. There's many more things that could be say, said about this, but based on the Bible's warnings, four general guidelines that I think draw out some really important principles of wisdom uh, that will help us even as we parent, but even as adults, uh, how we think about this. Um, again, not, these are not hard and fast rules. I think they're wise guidelines based on the Bible's warnings, okay? But here's four things. When it comes to dark places and 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 crowds of, of difficult people. Speaking first of all to children and young people, children, youth, and young people, be careful who you spend lots of time with. It's just a fact of natural brain development. And I want to just warn, especially parents, but as adults, we need to remember something. Sometimes we think of children as mini adults, and it's not true. We think of, so here's adults, and then here's these children, they're just mini adults. They're not mini adults. Like there's all kinds of brain development happening. It's, well, and those of you who have teenagers, <laughs> I mean, you know this, they're, they're barely human in the way that we define human, right? Sometimes, but I'm just kidding. But, but they're different. A child is different. There's all kinds of development going on in the brain. There's been tons of research done on this. And young people are very susceptible to peer influence as a result of all kinds of attachment stuff and physiological stuff going on in the brain. And so you might think of them as, you might have ideals. And again, God uses families, missionary families, absolutely. And God uses children to reach people for Jesus, absolutely. My point is, let's not be naive about this. A child is not a mini adult. And you might think, you might have a really solid kid, and you might think, yeah, they're going to reach a bunch of people for Christ. But you might put them in, a, and you might just naively send them out into to some dark place or into a group of troubled kids, and you might find that the influence goes the opposite way, and a good kid can turn bad in a bad crowd sometimes. I'm not saying always, but it can happen. There's all kinds of things going on in the brain, and that child is not a mini adult. Okay, and again, my point here is not that good kids should sh always shun troubled kids, and that brings up my second point, which is up there already, which is uh, another dynamic to be aware of is. The difference between a good kid going into a group of troubled kids or a group of good kids who are really solid and tight with each other reaching out and bringing some troubled kids into their group. There is a totally huge difference, even for adults, but especially for young people, there's a huge difference between those two things. You, you send, often the influence goes from the group to the individual. That's often, not always, but often, and that's even actually with adults many times too, but Often the influence, not always, but often the influence goes from the group to the individual. So you can have a kid and they go into a, a bad group and often the, the, the group will influence the individual. But on the other hand, if you've got a good group and they take in, I'm not saying good kids should be shunning all the bad kids, absolutely not. But if you have a group, a base to work with and they bring someone in, that can be a huge difference. Does that make sense? And this brings up an application for all of us as adults that is so hugely biblical and so important as we think of this. Godly community is the base from which outreach into dark places best happens. 
And again, my, I just, I feel like there's naivety sometimes in Christian circles. And again, conferences and messages and people get pumped up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and be a light in a dark place, in a dark career. And that is true. Jesus is calling us to be lights in dark places. Absolutely. But the thing you have to realize is you're not, very few people are ever called to be a light on their own. We desperately need godly community. And there are people, the certain jobs are darker than others. There's no question. And there are some careers where it's dark. I mean, I think of, you know, some, you know, police officers and some of those where they go into certain places and different things where it is super, super dark. And there's other careers and and jobs that are like that too. And you go into a place where every day, all day, you're in a place that is filled with cynicism and darkness and sin and all sort of stuff. And sometimes young people, they think, I'm just going out there and I'm going to be a light. And they go out there by themselves. And I've seen it happen many times to many Christians is instead of them being a light, they end up getting jaded and they become jaded and cynical and hard. Now, again, what I'm saying here is not Christians be afraid of the dark. What I'm saying is you need godly community. I need godly community. We weren't made to be lights on our own. So particularly for those of us who are in dark places, I'm not in a dark place here, by the way. I work with a good staff. Um, for those of you who are in dark places, I'm mostly not in a dark place here at Selzheim, but uh, um, for those of you who are in dark places, you need, there's a huge difference between a person who's working in one of these dark, cynical environments or always with, you know, in these dark places who then has a group of close friends who's with them on the journey, who they are praying with regularly, who they are sharing things with regularly, who are going after Jesus hard together. When you are around, the fact of the matter is, I don't care who you are. I just don't care who you are. God has made all human beings to be social creatures, which means that all of us here today are affected to some degree by what's around us. Now, some of us are influenced more easily and some of us are influenced less easily, but we are all influenced by what's around us. You, you take a Christian, you take the same person, put them in an apathetic church for five or six or seven or eight years, and you just leave them there, and they will be more apathetic than if you take that same person and you put them in an on fire for Jesus church for five or six or seven years. There's something different when you're around people and they're all seeking after Jesus and they want Jesus and that's what they talk about and they're praying for you and they're doing that. Your heat starts to go up and when that's not happening, your heat starts to go down. We need community. So you're out in that place. That's great. You need to be a light for Jesus. But what's the difference between the one where the darkness spreads onto you or where your light spreads onto others? I'll tell you what it is. It's a connection to godly people who are praying for you, who are encouraging you, who are themselves going hard after Jesus. And that's the fuel that keeps you going in a dark place. We need godly community. Desperately need it. That's why we have a cell ministry here. And that's why we're pouring lots of resources into that cell ministry right now as well. And I really have high hopes for what's going on there in the discipleship. But we need godly community. And this brings up a fourth thing, which is this. And this might be obvious to some, but it just needs to be said. There is a huge difference between reaching out to sinners and joining in with sinning, is it not? There is a huge difference between reaching out to sinners and joining in with sinning. There is a huge difference between inviting a person who maybe loves to drink and party on the weekends. There's a huge difference between inviting a person like that over to your house for dinner 
or taking them out for coffee to show them you care and joining them at Friday night, uh, joining them on Friday night at the party. There's a huge difference between those two things. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to preach this is because over and over again in the gospels, it is emphasized that Jesus was hanging out with sinners. And I think a lot of Christians have got the wrong picture of what that is or what that was. I think a lot of Christians have this idea that Jesus was at all these wild parties and with all kinds of crazy drinking and bad stuff going on. And that's because Jesus, and that's why the Pharisees are mad at him. I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus was not at wild parties every week. And you want to know how I know? Because Jesus makes wild party partiers feel awkward. I'm going to show it to you in just a moment. Some of you are nervously laughing because that's been your picture of Jesus all this time. Do you know that when Jesus comes into a room, nobody feels good about sinning when Jesus comes into a room? People with good hearts want to repent. People with bad hearts get mad. People who aren't ready to repent run out the back door screaming. Okay, and I can show you examples of all three of these in the Gospels. And I will in just a moment. But let me read you something here from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. Peter says this to Christians, for the time that is past, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. All of that, Peter says, is in the past, if you're a believer. Look what he says this. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. You see what Peter's assumption is here? If you've accepted Jesus, you are no longer joining people at these things. That's his assumption. He says, and your old friends are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They may not even like you. You know what's one of the excuses that sometimes here Christians use? I've got to be at those things because otherwise I'm going to lose my influence with them. I got to keep going to those things so I can show them that Christians are still cool. Can I tell you something? Jesus doesn't want you selling him with cool. Now, there are some Christians who are cool. I am not one of them. <laughs> some people can pull it off. And, and there are some people in this church that are able to pull it off. I'm, I'm not one of them, okay? It's not, I'm not saying it's ungodly to be cool. If you got it, you got it. So just do it, okay? But, <laughs> but Jesus does not need you to be cool to sell him. He wants you to be different. You say, if I don't go to those places with those people, I won't have influence any, with them anymore. And Jesus says, I don't want you to have that kind of influence anyway. And they malign you. Jesus wants you to have a different kind of influence that people who are in sin see something different in you. And when they're ready for the gospel, they're going to feel convicted by it. So yes, we can reach out to sinners, but there's a difference between taking a sinner out for coffee or having them over for dinner and showing them you care and going into the pit of sin or the den of sin with them. Those are two very different things. There's a difference between reaching out to sinners and joining in with sinner, sinning. And if we go back to Jesus now in the Gospels, I'm going to show you just briefly before we go back to Luke 15. Again, I could show you many, many examples, but uh, this is the kind of hanging out with sinners that Jesus was doing. Get out of your mind the picture of Jesus, the wild partier. Jesus in the den of sin. Everywhere Jesus went, he confronted sin. Jesus was not the guy who showed up at a party and everybody went, wow, Jesus, you're so cool. Can hardly wait to party with you next week. Everywhere he went, people either repented or they hated him. 
John chapter 8, let me just show you a couple of examples. This is a very famous one. John chapter 8 is a famous story of the woman caught in adultery. Amazing story. Love it. So gracious. The Pharisees want to stone her to death. Of course, Jesus starts writing in the dirt, probably writing the sins of the Pharisees who wanted to stone her. And he says, he was without sin, cast the first stone. They all slink off. No, you, you never want to stick around when Jesus is writing sins in the dirt. Okay, you just want to get out. So they all slink off and Jesus is left with the woman. And of course, there's this famous line. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. And don't we all love that line? We all love it. I'll read it to you, right? Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now, many people publish books and teach conferences and stop the quote there, but it's not a period. It's a semicolon. And I love this about Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Wow. Do we all need to hear that this morning? I think a lot of us need to hear that. Neither do I condemn you. That's amazing. I love that about Jesus. And maybe you've brought some condemnation in here today and you can hear Jesus saying that to you as well. Neither do I condemn you. But he doesn't leave it there. The rest of the sentence goes, go and from now on sin no more. Go and from now on, sin no more. Jesus always confronted sin wherever he went. Always. Nobody ever came away from an encounter with Jesus thinking it was okay to sin. You remember Zacchaeus? Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was actually a bad wee little man. He was a tax collector. He did bad things. The tax collectors all did. They ripped people off. They cheated. They lied. They stole. Zacchaeus has Jesus over for one lunch. And at the end of that lunch, what, is he, what ends up happening? And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. One lunch with Jesus. And Zacchaeus isn't going, what a cool guy. I'm going to go back to my life the way I've been living it. He says, everybody I've taken advantage of, I'm paying them back four times. That's one lunch with Jesus. Jesus didn't go into pits of sin and everybody go, Oh, what a cool guy. Let's have him at the party next week. Jesus was a party killer. Luke chapter 5, okay? Not good parties. Good parties, great. Lots of fun. Bad parties, not good. Luke chapter 5, people feel awkward or terrified sinning around Jesus. Think about Peter. For one of his earliest encounters with Jesus, he's in a boat, and uh, Jesus says, put the net on the other side after he preaches. And then Peter puts the net on the other. He says, I, I, I've, I've tried that already. Jesus says, try it again. But yes, sir. Starts pulling up the, la- the net, starts breaking. And what happens to Peter? Look what he says. Well, look what it says next. When he realizes who Jesus is. But when Peter, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus makes people feel many things, but comfortable in sin is not one of them. Jesus makes people feel many things, but comfortable in sin is not one of them. Does he make them feel love? Yes. Does he reach out with mercy and grace? Yes. Is he drawing each person here this morning towards him with grace saying, I I forgive you. I do not condemn you. We sang that amazing song about him forgetting our sins. When we repent to him, he actually forgets. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Amazing, 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 amazing. But you never leave one of those encounters with him going, I'm going to just keep sinning and it's no big deal. He makes people feel many things. Comfortable in sin is not one of them. And I could show you, I have other examples here, but I'm going to keep moving just because 
because of time, but there's the town of people who actually begged him to leave their town after he cast out some demons. But good hearts feel convicted. Not ready hearts want to get away. Bad hearts hate Jesus. But nobody stays neutral around Jesus. So when we read in the Gospels that Jesus hung out with sinners, get out of your mind the picture of Jesus in a den of sin, partying it up with sinners. Have in your mind Jesus at Zacchaeus' house for lunch. Jesus with the adulterous woman. Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Jesus loves sinners. Thank heaven. But he does not condone sin. And that's where the Pharisees went wrong. As we go back to Luke 15. It wasn't wrong for the Pharisees to stay away from sinful places. That's fine. That's good. It's not wrong for the Pharisees to stay away from sinful places. Where the Pharisees got it badly wrong is that they had no heart for sinful people. And as a result of their pride, they thought they were the closest ones to God because they stayed far away from the sinful places. But God says, you're actually, you think you're close to God because you stay away from sinful places. You're actually far from God because God loves the sinners. God loves the broken. And so Jesus responds to them and he wants to show them God's heart in these three parables. And so, of course, as Jesus always does, and I love this in his messages, of course, he always, have to give, he always has to intentionally give a tweak to the people who are listening to him. His first two parables have to do with shepherds and women. And I think you have to understand, these are Pharisees he's talking to. They despise both shepherds and women. Shepherds are actually part of a class. When the Pharisees talk about sinners, it's actually a technical term. It includes tax collectors and shepherds, people who they think are far from God. They're lowly and they're despised. And as to women, you'll find this interesting. Many Pharisees actually prayed a prayer. I actually took this, this, this exact prayer, not in English, obviously, but many Pharisees actually prayed a prayer each day that went like this. Excuse me. Put too much spice on my eggs this morning. But anyway, um, <laughs> blessed are you. Okay. <laughs> Hot. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So the Pharisees, uh, don't get mad at me, I'm not a Pharisee, okay? I didn't pray that. Well, technically that's not true. I have prayed that prayer four times, each time in the birthing room with my wife. I did thank God that I was not a woman. But other than that, the Pharisees had a very different connotation to it. But the Pharisees would pray, many of them daily, thank God that I'm not a woman. So of course... Jesus is going to tell two parables and he's going to make them think of themselves as a shepherd and a woman. And so in verse 4, right? Verse 3, so he told them this parable. What man of you? And he makes them, he draws them in and makes them think of themselves as shepherds. And I just love how Jesus does that. He has got a sense of his own humor. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country? Now we're getting God's heart. Stay away from sin, yes. Be careful of the company you keep, yes. But now let me show you God's heart for lost people. Let's not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. See, in real life, a shepherd, to a shepherd, his sheep are everything. That's his livelihood, that's everything. This is not, oh, one of my sheep got away. Ah, it's just one, hopefully he'll come back. A shepherd would never just let a sheep go off, especially not in those days. 
Now, of course, a shepherd also wouldn't leave. Sometimes people read too much into parables. Just so you know, by the way, I'm going to help you understand parables a little bit. Parables are, are, are you know, teaching tools by Jesus to teach a certain point. So you can't read into all kinds of little details. Sometimes people are going, oh, who are the 99 that Jesus is leaving? Jesus leaves them in the open country. The point here is not that a she no shepherd would ever leave his 99 alone in the open country. But these are extra details. He would have other shepherds help him or his family or a friend. He would never leave the 99 untended. The, but the point of this parable is to show God's heart for the lost one. So the other details are extraneous. They're, they're not needed. So you don't need to read into that very much. The point is the shepherd would never leave the one. That is way too important. He is going to go and he's going to find. Now, I hope, again, so many of these stories were Christians heard it a million times. Of course, God goes after the lost sheep. He's such a loving God. Do you realize how revolutionary this is? If you came from a different religion, this is mind-blowing. There's a, there's a woman in her church. She's, uh, she was Muslim all her life and, and just gave her life to Christ a year or two ago. I met her recently here at church. Amazing. Sometimes people like that see things like this a lot better than we do who have just grown up steeped in it. You grew up in a different religion. You grew up in a different culture. And the gods that human beings have made up, there are no gods that are like this, the God, the true God of the universe. Most of the gods that human beings create hate people who don't obey them, don't listen to them, or match up to their standard of what they want. But the true God of the universe took on flesh, comes down and rebukes the Pharisees and says, I don't see those people as I hate them and I'm against them because they've rejected me. I see them as a shepherd would see a lost sheep. I want to bring them back into the fold. That is revolutionary. It's actually mind-blowing. And it's not just for non-Christians. It's his heart still to each of us here today. That's the shepherd's heart to the sheep. If you would stop and let and pay attention every morning, you would see that the shepherd is still wooing each one of us every day and every morning. And one of the things I love about this too, I love that Jesus uses sheep as the analogy and not horses. And I'll tell you why. Because horses are amazing creatures. In Jesus' time, they carried people into battle. There's been times in history where horses literally changed the world, like when the iron plow was invented and they were pulling these heavy plows, they actually changed agriculture, changed all kinds of things in history. Horses are amazing. You know, you can race them. They're smart. They do all these things. If Jesus, the thing about a horse is though, a horse is valuable because of what it does. A horse is valuable because of what it does. And that's why I'm so glad that Jesus didn't liken us to horses and say, you're just like horses. And it's like, well, there's the fast one and there's the strong one and there's the smart one. No, no. Jesus says, we're like sheep. Here's the thing about sheep. They have never changed the world. You, you don't race them. You don't, they don't, they're just sheep. That's not because of what they do. The shepherd loves the sheep because of what the sheep is. He's a shepherd and they're sheep. And you know, so many of us, we need to ask, same with the next parable. The parable is the lost coin. What does a coin do? A coin does nothing. It has value only because of what it is. It does nothing other than just be valuable as a result of what it is. Same with a sheep to a shepherd. It's just valuable because it's a sheep. And we go through these ups and downs and so many of us judge ourselves by our performance. What have I 
done that's important? What am I doing that's important? What have I done for God? What am I doing that looks successful to people? And we go through these ups and downs in life, and we go through these, these, these low times in our lives where we feel worthless, and we feel useless, and we think we're not accomplishing anything in our lives. And in those moments, we need to remind ourselves that God's love towards us is a shepherd to the sheep. It's a shepherd to the sheep. You don't have to do anything to make God love you. He just loves you. Your value doesn't come from all kinds of accomplishments and how much people like you and how successful you are. It just comes because you're you. And he loves you tremendously. And he's wooing you day after day. I also want you to notice that God is the instigator in both these first two parables. It's not us that earns it with God, trying to get his attention with all the amazing things we're doing. And finally, he notices how amazing we are. And then he saves us. It's never that way. We love him because he first loved us. The lost sheep doesn't find his way back. The shepherd goes looking. The shepherd goes looking even before the lost sheep knows he's lost. The lost sheep might not even want to come back yet. The only reason you've accepted Christ, the only reason you've made some of these good decisions to want to follow Jesus is because he was wooing you the whole time. He was the one who opened up your heart to understand the gospel. He was the one who opened up your eyes. He was the one that was drawing you in. And now suddenly you find yourself having this desire to repent. It was him instigating all along. He's the shepherd. But that doesn't stop at salvation. For the rest of your life, we need to get ourselves in the habit when you get up in the morning, instead of condemnation and uselessness and worthlessness and all these feelings we sometimes wake up with, to stop and meditate on the love of the shepherd for us, his sheep that he is pursuing and drawing us in. Well, let me just finish this message off with two applications. What does it mean to apply this message to our lives other than to meditate on the love of Jesus? Well, the first one is, is we need to become this kind of a church. Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees for not having that heart. We need to be that kind of a church, those kinds of cell groups, those kinds of people that welcome sinners in. We need to be that kind of a church that welcomes sinners in. When sinners walk in the door here, will they find stairs of stony judgment or will they find love and rejoicing? In all three of those parables in Luke 15, when the lost sheep comes back, when the coin is found, when the prodigal son returns, every time heaven is rejoicing. The question for us as a church is, and as cell groups is, when sinners come into this church, Will they be met with stony stares of judgment or will they be met with rejoicing? I'm so glad you're here. Now, some of you are thinking, see, when I say the word sinners, and this is where I have to do my tweaking. Sometimes when we think sinners, see, because we're different than the Pharisees. When we think sinners, there are certain kinds of sinners that in our culture are cool. And most of us are really cool when they come to church too. So you say that, so you see that guy who is coming out of the drug life and he, and he looks at maybe he's got some creative tattoos, let's call them, and different things. And he kind of comes into church and you can tell, oh, that guy's turned his life around. That girl's turned her life around. We see them in church and a lot of us can get excited about that. That's neat. Okay? And that is neat. I want us to be that kind of a church. And we have people like that here in this church and I love that they're here and we're ministering to them. That's amazing. But there are other kinds of sinners that we don't accept as easily and if we're going to become a church that pleases Jesus, it means sinners, period. Can you agree with me that it just means sinners, period? 
Can I just get, I just want to make sure that you're all with me on this. Can we just agree that it's sinners, period? Okay, so let me name a couple. What about, (laughs) does that include hypocrites? No, you had to bring that one up. Can we be the kind of church? Because I'll tell you in our culture what's not cool. Hypocrites are not cool. Can we rejoice when we sit in church and two rows up or three rows over or we go to cell group or, or wherever it is and we see a couple of tables over or we see a couple of seats over someone who's a hypocrite? How dare they show up in church and I know during the week they're not living it. Which response would Jesus have to the lost sheep? Let me ask you that. Which one does Jesus have? Oh, it's easy. It's easy to accept the ones who come in from some kind of a different lifestyle. It's never hurt you. But can you rejoice at the ones who come into church and it's like they should not be here pretending to be Christians? Jesus says, ah, 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 Pharisees, ah, ah, ah. This is God's heart. The fact that they came to church, yeah, maybe they're not living it yet. But where else should a hypocrite be but in church on a weekend? Where else should a hypocrite be but in church on a weekend? You know what? We all have certain kinds of, have you ever noticed something? We have certain kinds of sinners we're okay with and certain kinds of sinners we're not. And I'll tell you how it works. Usually the way it works is the things that we have struggled with in our life we have grace towards when we see other people struggling with it. So if we come out of the drug scene or something like that, or we know people who have, and then we see people coming out of the drug scene, we have a lot of, oh, I'm so glad they're in church. But then if we see someone who lacks integrity or something else, and maybe that's an area that we consider in our lives to be a strong point, and we see someone else who doesn't have it, and they're now in church, and now we're steamed. But you know what that is called? To accept the ones who struggle with the same stuff as we did, but to not accept the ones who, don't, who, who struggle with things we don't struggle with. You know what that's called? Hypocrisy. And aren't you glad that Jesus gives grace to hypocrites? Oh, man, I am glad. I am glad. So do you know what we're going to have to do in order to become that kind of a church that welcomes sinners? All different kinds of sinners, including hypocrites. We're going to have to learn to let go of judging and embrace forgiveness. We're going to have to learn to let go of judging and embrace forgiveness. We're going to have to let go of judging. This is just too important for us to hear. We're going to have to let go of judging and embrace forgiveness. You know why it's so hard to let go with people sometimes? I'll tell you what it is. You know what's one of the root problems of the Pharisees? Self-righteousness. They thought they only needed this much forgiveness from God. And as a result, when they saw people who they thought needed this much forgiveness, they had a hard time accepting it. It's because they had too small a picture of how much God has forgiven them of. I can always tell when there's self-righteousness or pride in someone because immediately they're critical of everything, everybody else, and they're always ticked off. Da, 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 da. Meanwhile, what that shows is that you only have received this much grace from God. And you're only willing to give that much to someone else. And there's a whole bunch left over so you can criticize the rest. You want a person really enters into a revelation of how much God has forgiven them and how much grace he's given to them. When you realize that you have needed God this much. 
and the stuff from your past that was horrible, that he forgave you of, the shameful stuff, when you realize how much grace, this much, now you see someone else coming to church with this much, and yeah, it doesn't mean you have to trust them. Forgiveness doesn't mean you got to keep going back and being a doormat for them. Not at all. You might never trust them again. They might not be trustworthy. But instead of sitting there unable to enter into worship or unable to be the kind of church or, the, or mature believers that God wants us to be and to be able to let it go and bless that person and say, Jesus, I am glad a lost sheep is in church today and maybe you're going to speak to them and bless them. We're going to have to let it go. That can only happen when we get a revelation of how much God's grace is to us. Amen? But this is Jesus calling to us. So I want you to just bow your heads with me and close your eyes. I'm going to ask Jesus to help us be that kind of a church. Lord Jesus, thank you for your heart towards us. Thank you for your grace. We need to be a people who can let go of judgment and embrace forgiveness. I think there's probably names popping into people's heads right now. There is no excuse for any of us to hold bitterness against anyone. Would you help us to let go and bless those who have hurt us? Would you help us to let go and bless those who are hypocrites? Would you help us to let go and be a church that is flooded with your forgiveness? And as that happens, that your spirit would flood and move in our hearts and in this church. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.